The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about genetics and privacy. We'll speak with bioethicist Kelly Hills about the promises and perils of putting your DNA on the internet. But first, we'll talk with science writer Tina Hessman Say, who mailed off her DNA to more companies than she can count. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And today, I'm continuing a discussion from a previous episode about genetics. When we spoke with Carl Zimmer about his new book, I noted that these days you can spit into a tube, mail it off, and a few weeks later, get a link to all of this information about yourself. You will find out how much of you is Neanderthal and whether or not you're really Irish. You might even click to find out if you have an increased risk for certain diseases like breast cancer. But how reliable are these tests? What do they tell you? What is still a mystery? How private is that DNA once you've put it on the internet? Here to help us out is Tina Hessman Say, the molecular biology senior writer at Science News Magazine, and my favorite person to eat ramen with. Tina, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Now, first of all, you decided for a three-part feature on genetic testing. You went and got your DNA tested, and not just a little tested. You got it really, really, really tested. <laughs> How many companies did you send your spit to, and why did you do this? <laughs> I think I sent my spit to um, seven or eight companies. Um, so <laughs> the reason that I decided to do this was, well, I, I guess I should start from the beginning. You've been able to do this, send your, your spit or a cheek swab to companies and have your DNA tested for about a decade. But I hadn't done it up to this point because most of the companies do what is called SNP testing. So SNP is actually three letters, S-N-P, and it stands for a really long set of words, um, single nucleotide polymorphisms, but you don't have to know that. You just call them SNPs, and what SNPs are are places in your DNA where there are variations between people. So I might have a G in, in one place, so the, the DNA letters A, T, C, and G, and maybe you have an A at that place. And that's perfectly normal. Uh, these, these variants are usually very common, and these companies test for a couple hundred thousand of them. So that may sound like a lot, but it's really less than 1% of your DNA. And I know from years and years of covering genetics that these SNPs are sometimes associated with diseases or certain traits, but they're not the things that usually cause those things. So they are, they're sort of signposts that tell you, like when you're driving down the highway, that in 52 miles, you're going to reach Wilmington, but they don't actually tell you <laughs> how far away Wilmington is. 
They're just saying, uh, there's a gene coming up that may have something to do with a disease. So it's, it's all about statistics. It's all just associations. So anyway, these companies have been doing this for a while, testing these couple hundred thousand SNPs and making associations with diseases. Well, in the last few years, a couple of companies have come online that are doing more than that. They are actually sequencing DNA. And when I say sequencing, what I mean by that is that they read every single letter. They don't just spot check a letter here and there. Um, so some companies like the company Genos and another company called Helix sequence what's called the exome. And that is just the 1% to 2% of your DNA that contains genes that will make proteins. So that can be very informative because if you have a mistake in one of those genes, that might cause that protein not to do its job the way it's supposed to, and that can lead to disease. Another company called Veritas and a few others um, will actually sequence your entire genome. That's the whole shebang. And when they say it's whole genome, they, they're fudging it a little bit. It's not the whole thing, but it's pretty close. There are a few spots that are just too difficult to read, mostly because they are just repetitions of the same letters over and over and over again. And so you can't really tell where it starts and where it ends. So I decided, wouldn't it be great to actually get my genome sequenced? And then I thought, well, actually, you know, do I need to get the whole genome sequence? Maybe if I just got my exome sequence. But then I thought, well, you know, maybe I should do a comparison. Like, do you really find out that much more information if you do a whole genome sequence versus an exome sequence versus getting your SNPs tested? And so I put that question to my editors and I said, look, you know, I could get all these levels of testing and we can compare these things. And uh, after a bit of persuasion, they agreed. And so I sent my DNA off. At that point, I had chosen to do 23andMe, which is a company that uh, does both health and ancestry testing. They do the SNP testing. I sent it to Genos for um, exome sequencing and Veritas for the whole genome sequence. But then uh, I started wondering about some of these other companies that were offering tests and the things that they offered. So there were several um, ancestry testing companies that are that are big in the market, like Ancestry, for instance, um, which is probably the biggest consumer DNA testing company around. They have more than 10 million people who have taken their DNA test. So I 
bought an ancestry kit and then um helix started offering these tests um so i decided to compare between helix and genos so i bought a helix test and um they offer uh national geographic as one of their partners that analyzes the the dna sequence so i got information from national geographic and then i decided i should do living dna which is a company that's in in britain and offers much more precise estimates of your british heritage which i have a pretty good amount of british and irish heritage so i did them and then i thought well you know i should try family tree dna as well because um they do all this stuff too and they will compare your dna to ancient europeans dna and they can tell you uh you know where your heritage was you know we're talking 40,000 years ago and uh you know how your ancient ancient ancestors moved throughout europe so i thought i should do that too and i also tested with a couple of other companies um one called Gencove which is no longer in the consumer market um and uh i was also able to upload raw data from 23 and me and ancestry to another ancestry testing site called myheritage but i didn't actually send spit or cheek swab to myheritage so yeah so i don't know how many that is in total but it's, it's more a than lot. <laughs> <laughs> so for for most of these you had to either spit in a tube or mail off a cheek swab did you ever worry that you were going to run out of spit like after the first 3 or 4 no um it, a lot I'm, of spit. I'm kinda, it is kind of i mean it's only like a couple of milliliters of spit so it's not a huge amount and i'm kind of drooly so <laughs> <laughs> probably lucky for this particular feature <laughs> exactly now you you mailed off to all these companies so and you mentioned that uh 23 and me for example looks at snips single nucleotide polymorphisms um genos looks at exome uh helix will look at your whole thing So well, Helix also looks at exome. Oh, I'm sorry. I forget um, which one. Veritas the is the company that will look at the whole thing. Veritas. Yeah. Okay. So, how did those turn out different? How did they compare in terms of what they gave you? So, it turns out that the exome sequence Helix or well, Helix's one exome sequencer uh that I tried. So, Helix will sequence your exome but they won't tell you anything about it. If you want to know about it, you have to buy apps in the the store that they have oh, from from is. different partners. And so you have to pay, you know, 50 bucks here, 30 bucks there or something um to this partner who will analyze a subset of your DNA. 
So they will analyze certain SNPs that occur in certain genes that are related to metabolism or or muscle strength or something like that. And they will tell you only about that very narrow segment of what's in your DNA. So I really didn't do much with Helix. Um, I did a, a sleep um, analysis test, um, mainly because it was the cheapest app that they have. And they were running a sale so that I could get the Helix kit for free. And that's normally $80. So for $30, I got <laughs> a free <laughs> Helix kit and this, this uh, sleep analysis thing. They look at your, your genes and tell you whether you're a morning person or an evening person or, or whatever. Um, so I thought that was a pretty good deal. Yeah, and that then, is a good deal. Yeah. To be fair. And, and, so all these companies frequently have sales, like especially around Mother's Day and Father's Day and Christmas and sometimes even like Valentine's Day um, and DNA Day, which is in April. <laughs> They'll just have random sales. Um, so you can, if you keep your eye out, you can you can find some pretty good deals on them, so you don't have to pay the full ninety nine dollars or whatever. Um, and the first thing you did was kind of well, maybe it was the last thing, but you were comparing ancestry. You were looking for the source of your ancestry. What did you find, and how well did the question did the tests? agree with each other? Did one of the tests, you know, come out and say, no, actually, you're from French Polynesia? <laughs> so it wasn't that drastic. Uh, they all agreed that I am by and large European. But that's kind of where the agreement ends. So I had a pretty wide range of results. Um. For instance, I I have a fair amount of British ancestry, which I already knew just from knowing something about my family tree. So British, Irish, um, Scottish, and Welsh. And the estimates that I got range from somewhere around 20% British and Irish to 70-some percent. British and Irish. That's pretty wild. So, yeah, and it's the same DNA, so it hasn't changed. <laughs> I'm still the same percentage, whatever British that I am. It's just that the companies don't agree on what percentage I am. And the reason for that is because... It all depends on who they're comparing you to as to what results they're going to give you. So who they compare you to are groups that they call reference groups. Now, these tend to be um, people who participated in research studies. Uh, there's a few big research studies that sampled people from various parts of the world and um, so like that's the Thousand Genomes Project and, and a few others. 
that uh, th those are in like publicly available databases. So a lot of the companies draw on those. And then they also do their own testing in various parts of the world. So they each have sort of a unique database that they are comparing your DNA to. So what happens is that sometimes they won't have exactly the pattern of DNA that matches people in Ireland, for instance, but it's close enough that they'll say, yeah, you're Irish, even though maybe you're not really Irish. Maybe your family is really Welsh, but they don't have enough people in their sample that's from Wales to actually be able to say this is actually a pattern that we see in Wales rather than a pattern that we see in Ireland. Many people kind of started getting their DNA sequenced to learn where they came from and get their ancestry data. But some of the services that you looked at offer health information. And a lot of that is things that are, for example, those single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs that are linked to various diseases such as breast cancer or Alzheimer's, things like that. How accurate is that health information? Well, it depends on which information you're talking about. So for the most part, as I said before, the SNPs are mere associations with disease. There are some SNPs that they know for sure are causing breast cancer or cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs disease or something because those SNPs happen to be ones that actually change a part of the protein and stop it from working. So those ones are, you know, your, your, your risk of getting a disease is much higher if you have one of those. Um, for some, like with cystic fibrosis, if you have certain of these SNPs or mutations, a lot of times they get called, um, you pretty much are going to get that disease. But for other ones, you may have a higher risk of getting the disease, but that doesn't mean that you're absolutely going to get it. For even something like breast cancer, where if you have a, a mutation in either the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes, so these are, these are the breast cancer genes, um, they are actually involved in helping repair your DNA when mistakes get made, uh, but they were discovered because of their connection to breast cancer. So there are literally thousands of mutations in those genes that can cause breast cancer. And women who have one of those mutations may have up to like a 70% lifetime risk of getting breast cancer. But that means that there's still like 30% of women who are not going to get cancer, even though they have that mutation. And that's because there are lots of other things that go on to determine whether or not you're going to develop a disease. There are 
lots of other genes that are involved. And maybe you happen to have a version of a different gene that counteracts the mutation that you have in, in one of these disease genes. Or maybe you are just in a really clean and pristine environment and you don't have the outside pressures that might push you into getting a disease. Or, you know, maybe you are really conscientious about exercising and eating right. Or maybe you're just lucky and you won't get it. So most of these things are not guarantees. And the ones that are tightly associated with disease, um, you know, that they have some actual causative things for, that's pretty accurate. The ones that they actually report to you. But there's a problem with, remember I told you they test hundreds of thousands of these things, and they may only report to you about a handful of things. So, for instance, 23andMe will tell you about three breast cancer SNPs. And as I said, there are thousands of these things. So they will tell you if you have one of those three. But if they tell you you don't have one of these variants, that doesn't mean you don't have one of the other thousands of variants. And... They they actually test for more than those three, but they don't they're not allowed by the Food and Drug Administration to tell you about those things because of what I said before, that those have not been shown to be like really solid evidence that that is going to give you breast cancer or they have not demonstrated that their test is accurate enough. But those results are still in your what's called raw data. So you can download the raw data, so all the information that they have collected about you, and you can then take that data and go to several different websites that will, you can pay them a small fee, you know, five to $25 or $50, whatever, and they will then analyze all that raw data. Well, it turns out that there are a lot of mistakes in the raw data. They may say that you have a particular variant when you really don't. So when these analysis sites look at this, they only know what's in that raw data. So they say the raw data says you have this variant. That means you are at much higher risk of getting this disease. But when you follow up with your doctor or genetic counselor or someone and they send you for further testing, it turns out that that doesn't always turn out to be the case. Um, and in one study, they found that 40% of the variants that they, that they were trying to confirm turned out to be false positives. So raw data can contain a lot of mistakes and you just don't know. You really have to get this information confirmed with a doctor. And even when um, you have a result that the 
that the original testing company does tell you about, you still need to get that confirmed because, you know, mistakes happen. And uh, these are not diagnostic tests. So you really need to go and talk to someone about this and and uh, see what see what is the real situation that you're dealing with. It seems odd to say this after we've just been talking about how many false positives there are in these tests. But another aspect of these DNA databases, because these kind of, when you add your DNA to one of these sites, you kind of become part of this database. Um, and there's another aspect to some of these DNA databases, and that's solving crimes. So recently, the police used DNA and a site called GEDmatch to identify the Golden State Killer suspect, who... If people haven't heard of him, he committed some really terrible crimes in California in the 1970s and 1980s. I will leave you all to Wikipedia that yourself. It's terrible. Anyway, apparently they've caught him, maybe, through the power of his DNA. How did they do that? Because he never actually got his DNA tested. No, he didn't. But some of his relatives did. So what GEDmatch is, so GEDmatch is G. E-D match. So GEDmatch is one of these uh, third-party sites that I was just talking about, but instead of for health information, it's for ancestry information. So when you send your DNA to ancestry, for instance, they will match you up with relatives who share DNA with you. But they will only tell you about the relatives who are in their database. So if one of your genetic relatives didn't test with Ancestry, but they tested with 23andMe or MyHeritage or Family Tree, you won't know about it. So what a lot of people do is if they have enough money and or are uh, excessive like I am, they will send their DNA to multiple of these companies and get tested there so that they can get all of these matches. But another way to do it is to take the the raw data that you get from these companies, download it, and then upload it to GEDmatch. And so there you can see um, other people who have done the same thing, regardless of what company they tested with, you can find matches between yourself and them. So you can find a lot more relatives that way. And uh, it's it's coupled with family trees because, I mean, that's what you're really interested in, right? You don't just want to know that you're related to somebody. You want to know how you're related to them. So what the police did, so they had DNA that was collected at at one or more of the crime scenes that was from the Golden State Killer. But they, of course, don't know who this man is, right? That's what they're trying to find out. Well, that DNA didn't match anything in the police databases. So remember I told you that these these ancestry testing companies test for SNPs. Well, the police, they don't test for SNPs. They test for these short pieces of DNA that get repeated, and they are called short tandem repeats. 
and people have variable numbers of these repeats. Like, so for one of these repeats, maybe you have five and somebody else has seven and somebody else has 11 or something. So they can tell, um, they classify people according to how many repeats they have in each one of these. And they have a big database of people who have been arrested and convicted of crimes that um, go into this database and they compare um, their repeats with the, the crime scene DNA repeats. So the Golden State Killer, he did not match anybody in those. Well, Jed Match doesn't use these short tandem repeats. So what the police had to actually do was go back to that crime scene DNA, the original DNA. They had to sequence it. Then they had to pull out the same SNPs that one of the testing company uses and make a file that mimicked what the testing company uses and upload that to GEDmatch. So then they were able to find that he matched someone in the database, some relative. So then they took, they, they looked at the relative and said, oh, this person, I forget exactly what the relationship in that case was. Um, there was another case recently in Washington State um, where they also caught a killer or a suspect in a killing. Um, and in that case, the crime scene DNA matched two people in the database, and both of them were at the second cousin level. So that indicated that the, the suspect that they were looking for probably had the same great-grandparents as these two people that they got the match on. So then a genetic genealogist has to go through and reconstruct family trees of, of the people, the relatives, go back through their family tree and then trace it back down to who they think is their suspect. Then they had to do some more like regular type police work to figure out, you know, was this person in the right place to have committed these crimes? Um, you know, are they about the right age? Uh, you know, did they possibly know these people? Things like that. And once they had their, their suspect narrowed down, they could then trail this person and get DNA from a cup that they left behind, like they went to a fast food place or something, drank out of this cup, threw it away when they were done, and the police pick up the cup, get the DNA from it, and in that case, then they go back to the original um, police database, and they're doing these short tandem repeats again, and they found that that DNA was a perfect match for the crime scene DNA. So then at that point, they say, yep, we've got our guy, and they go and arrest him. So part of me is incredibly impressed because that's crazy amounts of work. And the other part of me is really creeped out right now. 
Well, so there are, there are several schools of thought on this. I mean, some people are, are saying, apparently, um, you know, test me. How do I, how do I get in on this? I want to help catch criminals. Um, and if you want to do that, uh, you know, send your DNA to one of these companies and upload it to JetMatch. But for a lot of other people, they're saying this is actually a, a real invasion of privacy. And it's a, a type of um, police action that violates constitutional rights because you don't know who these people are that you're searching. You're basically shaking down somebody's family tree, hoping your suspect is going to fall out. And, you know, maybe this person is adopted and they don't even know who their family is. Or, you know, you're investigating this person and you know it's their third cousin or something. Well, you might have a ton of third cousins and maybe they don't have the right person. So they're investigating you for this crime when you had absolutely nothing to do with it. So they could be investigating innocent people in these cases. And that has happened. And in fact, in the Golden State Killer case, they originally um, had searched a public database that had Y chromosome sequences. And Y chromosomes are the chromosomes that contain all the instructions for making male parts. So men have Y chromosomes and women do not. So they had searched this database with Y chromosomes and they found that there was a person in this database who was a partial match. And so um, they actually subpoenaed that database to get information about who this person was. And it was a man who was in a nursing home in Oregon and they got a warrant and made him spit in a cup so that they could test his DNA. And it turns out it was not him. But this poor man was being investigated for being the Golden State Killer when he had nothing to do with it. Yikes. Well, on that note, we have a bioethicist to talk to you about this one. Tina, thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome. We've linked to Tina's three-part feature on genetic testing, as well as her articles on using DNA to catch criminals and a delightful Lego video about DNA recombination at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, you've now heard about using DNA to catch criminals, and you've heard about putting your DNA on the internet. And all of this should tell you that your DNA is not just yours. It's your parents, it's your siblings, it's your kids. Getting your DNA sequenced or mapped could have effects down the road that aren't even about you. And for that, we need to talk to a bioethicist. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. 
As we just heard, lots of people are taking their DNA, getting it tested, and putting the results on the internet. Often, it's on a password-protected site. But also, that same information on that site can be used to find relatives, other people who are also on that site. And then if it's uploaded to somewhere like GED Match or GEDmatch, people can use that data to do things like catch the Golden State Killer. This has implications for privacy and for ethics. And contrary to popular opinion, ethics is not just the golden rule and is not something that you feel with your gut. No, there are professionals. They think hard about this stuff. And one of those professionals, and the person I most enjoy talking about nail polish with, is Kelly Hills. She's a bioethicist and consultant with Rogue Bioethics. Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to finally be here. Now, ethicists don't go with their guts, as I said. Instead, Mm -hmm. they tend to work within very specific frameworks, and that's going to determine how they respond to ethical questions, like those surrounding DNA and privacy. So I wanted to start by asking you, what is the framework that you use when you approach ethical questions? Right. So I actually am part of a bioethics tradition called casuistry or case-based reasoning. And one of the big differences that um, happens with casuistry versus, say, uh, consequentialism, which most people um, are probably familiar with as utilitarianism or Kantianism deontology is that uh, casuistry doesn't focus on rules and theories, but instead on practical decision making based on uh, paradigmatic cases. And so essentially, what I think and feel, and even my own personal morality and ethical theory doesn't come into play. What I'm looking for is I take a look at historical cases, whether they're good or bad, and I find ones that align closely with the situation that I'm being asked to deal with. And that allows me to look at things like religion, culture, community um, within a particular framework and apply it forward to the situation in front of me. So speaking of applying things forward, Mm -hmm. we're in the future. (laughs) I wanted to start by asking about the ethical issues that arise when people put their DNA on the internet, what are the kinds of questions that people should be asking themselves or thinking about when they say, hmm, this 23andMe kit looks like a lot of fun? Right. I think actually the first one that people are, are probably going to be a little surprised that um, I'll, I'll name is simple, basic, what are they going to do with your information? So say you give this company, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just say, I don't know, uh, random genetic testing company, your, your, um, your DNA. What are they doing with it? Are they just using it to give you information about your heredity, health, family members? Or are they using that test to sequence some kind of genetic uh, inheritance issue for, oh, I don't know, Parkinson's? Are they searching for mutations that they can then sell to other people? Are they just collating the data and selling it forward? And the reason I think that people need to really consider what's being done by the company in question with your DNA is is the next thing, which is – related actually to your privacy. And that is, 
how do you take your DNA away from this company? How, how do you, if you decide you don't want it on the internet anymore, if you don't want it on somebody else's server, what is the process that you go about to remove it? And can you remove it from everybody that they sold it forward to? Um, so that has some implications. And you also want to think about things like security. You know, are their servers safe? Um, as I think you're aware, my heritage, um, a DNA site was hacked earlier this week and they had uh, email addresses and passwords stolen. So no uploaded genetic information, no DNA profiles were taken, but that doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. And, and the way this kind of, you know, hacking of data goes and the value that people can find in DNA certainly means that um, it's a good target for people with malicious intent. So, you know, I think those are just some really basic things. Once you think about the security of the server, what they're doing with your information, um, and how you get that information back if you change your mind, then you need to think about things like, what is that information going to tell you? Medically speaking, very few of these companies are validated by the FDA, meaning that they're not actually able to tell you um, anything that is medically valid. So if you have a health concern based on the report that you get, you're going to have to go to your doctor, tell your doctor your concern. Your doctor's going to probably consult uh, with a geneticist to decide if you need to go see the geneticist. And then you're going to have to either have your insurance come and be involved with this, pay premiums, have another test done. You know, if you're concerned about medical health issues, just go straight to your doctor. Uh, you could learn about lost siblings. You could learn that your one of your parents isn't your parents. Um, and you know, are you prepared to learn these things? Yeah, and one of the things you talked about first was this issue <laughs> of privacy. And yes. one of the things I've found when reading this a lot of articles about genetic testing, about heredity, um, is that I think everyone kind of has a definition of privacy that is uh, private, I guess. <laughs> as, <laughs> as an ethicist, how what is privacy? Uh, yeah, that's a good question, actually. Uh, for me, I would say um, privacy is basically, as, as redundant as it's going to sound, is, is having your private sphere kept out of the public sphere. So it is the things that you determine are not shared with everybody else. And and we have some pretty general, I would say, broadly agreed upon notions of what privacy is. Um, we agree that our bedrooms should be private, right? Nobody should be able to peep into our windows. That's illegal. Uh, we generally believe that our bathrooms should be private. Um, we don't think anybody should be able to walk into our house off the street without our permission because houses are private property. And within that, I think that our DNA is something very intimate to ourselves and thus it is private. It is not a public resource. So we also talked a little bit about how you need to be prepared for what you may hear or read when you send this DNA test off. These DNA tests can tell people fun things about the shapes of their toes or how much Neanderthal they are, but people might also find out that their father is not their genetic relation or that they have a potentially deadly mutation. Does that just kind of suck to them? Or do the companies who do this testing, is there any responsibility that they have or should have about this information to their customers? Well, this is one of those things that I think society has unfortunately already kind of agreed upon, that there is no real responsibility because nothing has 
has been provided and was not required to be provided when these tests started becoming available. Personally, I don't like that. Um, that's one of the reasons that I think if people have health concerns, they should skip the fun $70 spit test and go straight to their doctor because if you do come back with some horrific genetic mutation that is, you know, going to sound really, really scary and, you know, maybe be life altering, you want to have a genetic counselor on hand. You want somebody who can answer your questions. You want the support of that counselor, uh, the resources they can offer you, the groups they can put you in touch with. It's a very emotional level of thing. I would like to see that kind of thing offered universally. Um, it can be really traumatic to find out that you have a relative that you didn't know about. Why do you have a relative you didn't know about? Where did they come from? Is it because you're adopted or is it because they're adopted out? Or, you know, what are the big question marks and can you even get the answers? Um, I know somebody whose young child recently uh, did this and uh, found out that the child has a sibling that they didn't know about. And there's a bit of an awkwardness going on right now because uh, the sibling is being raised in a very different environment from uh, the family uh, with the child that I know. And that in and of itself is causing tension. There's no tension to the fact that there is an unknown sibling. The child's adopted. That was kind of an expected event. But the fact that the sibling is being raised in a very, very different cultural upbringing that is actually going to be vilifying some of the ways the child I know is being raised is creating a huge amount of issue right now. And this also kind of bleeds into another issue that your DNA isn't yours. I mean, it mm -hmm. is yours. You know, we're talking about how it's very private. It's very personal. Right. It's yours. But it's also your dads and your moms uh -huh. and your kids and your brothers and everybody else who you're genetically related to. What Which kind is a of really big list if you think about it's it. It's a like, big cloud. What yeah. kind of privacy implications are there when you put your mutations <laughs> online? Well, you, you know, uh, we're just starting to see some of that happen um, with, for example, the Golden State Killer being caught using DNA that was put online to an open source database from another source entirely. And I'm sure if you'd asked anybody but a futurist or maybe an ethicist a year ago, that would have been the furthest, furthest thing from anybody's mind. But that's an issue. And so when we're doing things like putting our DNA online, we have to think about how this is going to impact the community of people related to us, not just us as an individual. It is not actually a decision that I think we could make as an individual. And at least when people come to me and ask about doing these tests and if they should, one of the first things I always advise um, is, have you consulted your family? Have you asked your family what they think about these things? Do they want this information online? And, you know, I think it's very common to say, well, what's the big deal? And that's frankly, because a lot of people don't spend uh, their majority of their waking time mired in the history of medicine and ethics and knowing about... No, I know. It's shocking. So um, weird. It's, a, it's a fascinating thing. So I, I honestly don't know why everybody doesn't spend their time like this, but you know, <laughs> to each their own. Um, we've got some real bad examples in history over what happens when people have access to this information. So right now we have something called... Um, 
GINA, which is a genetic information uh, privacy act that offers some limited protections at the federal level for health insurance and employment and stuff like that. It's technical and it doesn't really matter. What matters is GINA isn't just a law that didn't always exist and may not always exist. In fact, it has been weakened in recent years. What does that mean? Well, prior to Gina, there was a railroad company, of all things, um, and I would have to look up the name of it. Um, Northern Santa Fe Railroad Company, that's what it was, railway company, excuse me. Um, this railway company had a lot of employees filing uh, disability claims against the company for carpal tunnel syndrome. And the railway decided that, mm, you know what, maybe we'll use genetic testing to try and determine if there's any kind of genetic predisposition to carpal tunnel. Because if we can find one, then we can say, no, this isn't a work injury. This is just your genes. And they can get out of paying disability, unemployment, extended benefits, things like that. Um, now, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission filed a court action against the company. Um, and that was all settled. It was a federal lawsuit and it was fed, uh, settled Um and part of that was that the railroad company agreed to um, preserve the data but not use it. And then eventually, you know, they got rid of it and stuff like that. But part of the eventual settlement that happened was that they said, we didn't do anything wrong. We didn't violate the law. We didn't engage in discrimination. It's just your genes. So, you know, we have some privacy protections in place and some legal protections in place right now that theoretically maybe might prevent that from happening in the future. But um, unfortunately, um, it was about, I want to say a year ago, there was a bill uh, proposed that would allow employers to get around some of the obstacles of collecting genetic information on employees if the information was collected as part of a workplace wellness program. So we're already kind of seeing that this genetic information privacy is starting to be eroded legally. What does that mean for two years from now? Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, often when I talk to people about privacy, and, and that's whether they put things on Facebook or whether they put their DNA on JetMatch or, you know, get their DNA done, they'll say, oh, I've got nothing to hide. I'm not worried. Right. So, yeah, I, I think that that's, um, that's a really interesting impulse to examine. Um, I kind of blame CSI and related shows for that in a way, because I think that it's, it's actually a dual impulse. It's not just, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to worry about. It's, I have nothing to hide and I want to help solve crime. You know, why wouldn't I want to help solve a murder? Things like that. And we don't actually stop and like really think this through. And well, I just don't think, I guess necessarily people understand really what could happen. You know, there's the things that are starting to come out about the GSK case, like, um, People who didn't do anything wrong were implicated first because this was not a close familial match in the system. So they actually found somebody else who matched first 
and went through the whole rigmarole of getting that person's DNA, contacting relatives, worked out okay in this case, and that the guy wasn't held for a crime he didn't commit. But there have actually been other instances already where people have been held on flimsy or shoddy genetic connections, and it has taken time to get them out of jail or to have their names exonerated. The other thing that I think is that it just comes back to the right to privacy and property. Um, so when we're talking about privacy, um, if you think about property, so something that, you know, belongs to us, uh, say our house, our paperwork, even our computer and this information on it, you generally need a level of probable cause to search through stuff. So this isn't really just what would be called um, substantive justice. It's also a procedural justice issue, um, which is just means that it is the transparent process by which law is enacted. Um, I know people who will argue that these overarching uh Practices can actually be tied to examples of counterterrorism practices being normalized by domestic law enforcement. You know, you're using things like using spy traps and the email filters and phone, you know, you're searching phone conversations for little pieces of information. And in a lot of ways, using DNA like this is that exact same kind of thing. Well, as a general rule of thumb, people aren't terribly happy when they think about how the government was collecting email or phone calls. You know, there was a lot of outrage over that. There was felt that was a significant overstep. And this should be viewed in the same way. Part of the reason this should be viewed in that same way is because goes back to the right to privacy. You should be able to voluntarily consent to having your information used. You should have the right to know who has your DNA and your personal data, how it's being used, where it's being stored, how it's being stored. You should know how to be able to revoke that consent, have the DNA removed or destroyed. We just don't have anything like that in place. And so it's not really necessarily just about I did nothing wrong. It's about... Because that functionally places it on you. You might be a fantastic, wonderful human being. Not everybody else is, though. And not every government is. And there's just no way to know now what's going to happen in the future. You might be a wonderful person who has, I don't know, 25% DNA from a country that is suddenly going to be declared part of the axis of evil and people with this DNA are going to be ruled traitors, you know, or, or sleeper agents, even worse in some ways. You know, uh, predicting the future is always difficult uh, and the best way we can do it is look at the past. And historically, we do not have what you would call the best track record with treating people well when it comes to genetic information. Um, and discrimination is unfortunately a very well-known part of human history. And we have discriminated against people based on race, religion, um, we have discriminated based on ability, whether or not people are viewed as disabled, whether or not people are viewed as disabled just because they have a history of family members who are disabled. Um, the same goes for mental illness. 
you know, unfortunately, we have the history of eugenics, and all of these things swirl around the realm of DNA and privacy. And and we were also talking about issues of data privacy, and that's mm-hmm. another issue. Uh, for example, MyHeritage, the site MyHeritage, had 92 million accounts hacked. Yes. Uh, they got passwords and emails, but not the DNA. Um, but hackers are good. It's only a matter of time. Is this something that people need to be worried about? Absolutely. Um, There isn't really necessarily a clear reason why you might not want people to have your DNA up front. Like you might be like, what does it matter if someone has my DNA? But, you know, let's let's go into like a William Gibson, Neil Stevenson, cyberpunk kind of future. We know that you can synthesize viruses relatively easily. What's to keep somebody from being able to piece together something that resembles your DNA and leave it a crime scene? You know, we already know that, unfortunately, there are bad apples who will frame people for crimes. How much harder is it going to be to exonerate yourself if you're framed for a crime when they have DNA? Think about, again, the CSI effect and just how much people love DNA and believe in the infallibility of DNA we know if you start getting into the science and accuracy and evilness of humans that DNA is not always foolproof. But, you know, an awful lot of people think that what you see on CSI or Law and Order or any other show that has really catchy intro and outro music is true. Well, now I'm really freaked out and I do not welcome our DNA overlords. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly, thank you so much for talking with us. You are quite welcome. If you'd like to learn more about Kelly Hills, we've linked to her website at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, and tell us whether or not you got your DNA tested and why. You can also find our Patreon page, where you can support our hardworking podcast crew with a monthly donation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 